If you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, we'll continue going through uh, what's been just a joyful book for me as I study it and a lot more challenging than what I thought it would be. Um, you know, as you prepare a message so often, you, you get so much more out of it than what you ever even express from the pulpit. And uh, I pray that this, that this book is being an encouragement to you and also a, a challenge as well. Um, Philippians chapter 2, let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for the miracle of the gospel, Lord. Thank you that in your majesty and in your glory, you, in eternity past, somehow decided to take on flesh. And Lord, you came down to us. You reached down into this chaotic world and you lived among us, Lord. And we thank you that you went lower than any of us could ever go, Father, so that you could raise us up, Lord. What a joy. And yet, Lord, you're not done, Father. You pour out your spirit into our hearts, Lord. You come and dwell not only among us, but in us. And Father, you're preparing us for glory. You're preparing us to be before that throne, to worship you, and to see you, Lord. And what a day that'll be, Father. So we just thank you for your plan of redemption that you're unfolding before our very eyes, that you're working not only, uh, Lord, on the outside, but you're working in us, Lord. So we pray this morning that you'd continue that work, Lord, that you began, that you're faithful to finish and complete. Father, would your spirit take your word and just apply it to whatever it is that we need this morning, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're looking at the book of Philippians, Paul's thank you letter to this church. Um, we started in chapter 1, verse 27, I'd say a, a thread that we've been following and we're going to continue to follow over the next couple weeks, and that is only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That Paul is shifting to how the gospel should affect the way that we live. And not that we'll ever, ever be worthy. We realize that we're not worthy in and of ourselves. But that when we understand the gospel, it should change our life. It should change the way we live. It should change the way we think. Uh, the way we speak. And we saw we were exhorted to be of one heart as a body, as a church. One mind. And God has given us so much to, to carry this out. He's given us uh, consolation or encouragement. He's given us comfort by his love, fellowship and partnership with the Holy Spirit, and his affection and mercy. And we're called to be of one heart, one mind. Uh, the church should be united together for the cause of growing to know the Lord, for the cause of sharing the gospel with others, for the cause of just knowing Jesus at the end of the day. And we, we saw last week that there are two enemies to this type of Christian unity. There's selfish ambition, and conceit. Now, ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. I just wanted to point that out. We should aspire to be all that we can be in the Lord's army, if you will. Um, there are good ambitions. It's a good ambition to desire to be a, a pastor, an, an elder, an overseer, it says in 1 Timothy. So there are good ambitions, but notice it was selfish ambition that we're warned about, that that selfishness within the heart of believers 
can bring about division in the body and also conceit, you know, thinking that we're better than thou. And we saw also that God's answer to any sin, including those two, no matter what sin that is that we struggle with, and I think all of us here this morning, we battle sin still, right? As long as we're in this body, as long as we're in the flesh, uh, we will have that battle. And it may look different for some of us. Some of our battles are more evident than others. Some of us can conceal those things and hide them. But no matter what sin that we struggle with on this side of eternity, the answer is always the same. It's the gospel. And Paul unfolded the gospel for us in a way that attacked selfish ambition and conceit. And isn't that what the gospel does? See, it it kills sin in the body of Jesus. And we saw how, what a beautiful display of the gospel as you saw sin, selfish ambition, and conceit, you know, don't let anything be done by that. Then we saw the mind of Christ, and we saw how God has a remedy. He has an answer, no matter what sin it is that we struggle with. And we saw that we are constantly to have the mind of Christ. Constantly to have that mind of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, he was the outward expression of the inward nature. Jesus is God, and as God, he did not consider it, he did not consider equality with God as something selfishly to hold on to. He did not use his divine privilege to serve himself. Rather, he used the privileges that he possessed to serve others. And in his incarnation, he took the form of a bondservant. Remember, that was the first time in time that Jesus was ever a bondservant, though he always had the heart of a bondservant. So he took the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. He's like us, and yet he's not like us, right? Fully man, yet without sin. Fully man, yet fully God. And through this, he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of all self-interest. He made himself nothing. So God's antidote for sin is a savior. And through the incarnation, he came down to us. You know, the longer I walk with the Lord, I think the more amazing the incarnation becomes. I could... I could meditate on this portion of scripture, verses four through or five through eleven, for the rest of my days on this earth. And if I think if you told me, Luke, you can only have one chapter of the Bible, like if you were going to forget everything else and you could only have one chapter in all of the Bible, which one would you pick? I really think it would be this one, because it covers everything. And what a beautiful answer to the ugliness of sin is the gospel. Is there anything more ugly than selfish ambition and conceit, really? Where those sins lead, man, they're issues of the heart. Think of where those sins, what those sins have caused the world that we live in today. The chaos, the brutality, the wars, the dictatorships, the suffering, unnecessary evil that it's brought upon our world. And yet we see in the midst of that evil, the beauty of our Savior, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we also saw not only was God made low for us, but we saw that it was God who highly exalted the Son, 
who now has the, the name that is above every name, and at his name every knee is going to bow, whether in heaven, earth, under the earth, every tongue's going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I think we, where we leave off, therefore, is that all of us are going to bow before the Lord. We're going to be before the Lord as hopefully our Savior, right? That it'll be a glorious thing for Christians to be before him. It's our great hope that one day we're going to see him face to face. But no matter whether we bow the knee to him on this side or whether we will bow the knee to him on that side, we will all give an account of our life to the Lord. As Christians, we will not give an account for sin. I'm thankful for that. It's not going to be where God, you know, has the screen up there for us believers and he's going to start playing out those things that we did in this body. Wouldn't that be horrible? Can you imagine even in one day what goes on in the human mind? And if God was to just display that for all of creation to see how horrible that would be. Well, that is not what's going to happen for believers. For believers, there's going to be a day of judgment in the sense of reward for faithful service unto Christ. As stewards, what did I do with this life that I've been given in Christ? Was I faithful with whatever it is that he gave me? And you can't compare what he's given you to other people, right? Because some people that he's given a lot to, and they're going to be answerable for a lot. For some of us, it might be something little or what we think is significant or what the world thinks is significant. But Jesus himself said, he who is least shall be the greatest. I believe when you look at the rewards in heaven, I believe there's going to be people getting the greatest rewards that no one ever, ever even heard that name before. Because those people were not about their own name, they were about the name. And everything that we do for the name is what's going to last. That's the precious things that are going to remain. The things that we did for this name, <laughs> those things are going to burn up. And so we will all give an account for the Lord, for, for the things that we've done for the Lord. And verse 12, that is the therefore. Everything that we just summarized Therefore, my beloved, I love the fact that Paul refers to them and us as the beloved. You know, he's not trying to beat us over the head with this truth. He, he didn't, as selfish ambition and conceit are, are maybe growing within the church of Philippi, he doesn't beat them over the head with truth. He still refers to them as the beloved. He loves them. Why? Because God loves this church. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is a passage of scripture that's been misunderstood and misused uh, at times. And I think it starts with the fact that it refers to here working out our salvation. And so the first thing I want to point out is what this word salvation means. Uh, many times in scripture when it refers to salvation, it's referring to the whole deal. That salvation is a, it's a, it's something that happened past tense, but it's also something that's happening and it's something that will happen in the future. And so when he uses salvation, sometimes he's using a blanket statement to refer to the whole thing, the whole shebang. How we typically use salvation is we typically use it in the sense of being justified, justification. 
where we put our faith in Christ, God declares us not only are we not guilty because Jesus paid the penalty, but he declares us to be righteous with the righteousness of Christ. It's a judicial statement. He, he is declaring us to be righteous in, the sight, in his sight because of Christ's righteousness. And so that word is justification. He sees us just as if we've never sinned, right? Because we're clothed in the, in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's the term we use usually as Christians. We say, when were you saved? Past tense. And we're referring to an event, a period of time. I was saved September 2003, right? We can look back on that event. And if we think that that's what he's referring to here, it's going to be a little bit tricky. Because we understand that we, we, all, we, all we provided to that event was our sin. That's all that we offer God when it comes to salvation is our sin. That's all that we can honestly account for. <laughs> so if you're going to glory in anything, which you can't, <laughs> you attributed sin to your salvation, which he took on his, in his body on the cross. That's not what he's referring to here. So that is the first part of salvation. The second part of salvation, which is what many of the epistles are about, is what we refer to as sanctification. And that is the process of becoming like Christ, being transformed into his image. That begins at that moment of salvation when you were justified. And that will continue as long as you're on this planet, in, that, in this body. Meaning that none of us have arrived, no matter how far we've gone in this thing. You've been walking with the Lord for 50 years, or you've been walking with the Lord for five minutes. We are all in this process of being transformed to become like Christ, sanctified, being sanctified. We are also, we'll see the last part of salvation is glorification, right? When we receive our resurrected bodies, salvation will be complete. And you will no longer be in a body that is tempted to sin, Dealing with this stuff, the selfish ambition and conceit and all this stuff of our hearts that God is addressing right now. And so sometimes in scripture, you see it said like this. We, are being, we were saved, justified. We are being saved, sanctified. We will be saved, glorified. Okay. And if we don't understand that, then it's going to be really confusing. Now, what is Paul referring to here when he refers to salvation? Well, I believe he is talking about the overarching thing, but specifically he's talking about our sanctification. He's talking about the fact that God is doing something in us. He's transforming us to be like Jesus. And so it's our sanctification that's in focus here. It focuses on how uh, those who are being saved live out their Christian faith with other believers and also those who are in the world. And notice when it says here about salvation, it does not say work for, right? Hopefully you notice that right away. It does not say that we're working for our salvation. That would be opposite of the gospel. Rather, it says that we are working out our salvation. And that means that we work to the full completion, to the ultimate conclusion. Some scholars say it's a, the idea of a math problem. When you get one of those math problems that's a word problem that we always love, right? You always love those word problems. I remember in college, uh, I did two years of engineering, and in, in math, in, in that type of uh, environment, you know, you would have one problem. And it would be three, four, five pages of work just to get that one answer. 
And the idea is that you would work this thing out to the completion. Hopefully you get that final answer that the professor's looking for. I, I think in Paul's day, it was also used in working in a mine where you would get all of that which is valuable out of it. Or in a field where you would get all the greatest harvest out of it. And so, in, a, in essence, we are this work in progress. We are the mine that God is mining, getting all the good stuff out of it. We are the field where he is harvesting, where he's producing fruit in our life. And it stresses our obedience. This is a very, very, um, in, in the Greek, it's very straightforward. It's emphasizing us and our part in our sanctification. We have a part in this, right? If, if I, as a Christian, never spend time in the Word of God, I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to mature. That's why he wants us to be like babes, just desiring the pure milk of the Word. Why? So that we grow in our knowledge of Christ. Remember when he studied Hebrews, the author of Hebrews was, was telling them, some of them, man, they should have been long ahead of where they were in their, in their practical sanctification. They should have been mature. They should have been teachers. But yet they're still babes just wanting milk and milk and milk. The simple, basic things. And so this stresses our part. It's very specific here. And that's why this passage of Scripture has been used out of context. Because it almost seems like if you're looking at justification, it looks like we would add something to that. But it's not speaking to that. And notice how we are to work this out. It doesn't seem to be New Testament words, yet it is. Because he says here, How much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, That seems like Old Testament words, right? Fear and trembling. Especially when you're talking about a work of grace of God. Why is it that we would work this salvation out with fear and trembling? And it's connected to our weakness. When these words are used... It reflects our vulnerability. It's used to describe the anxiety that we feel when we distrust our own ability to completely meet all the requirements that are required of us. Okay? Even though we religiously do to the utmost of our duty. In other words, we are totally and utterly insufficient in and of ourselves to do that which God has called us to do. As Christians, when we work this salvation out that God is, we're going to see, working in, we comprehend how utterly helpless we really are. Apart from Jesus, we comprehend, I can do nothing. I cannot do this on my own. You know, when God calls us into different ministries, you have a very early on understanding, I can't do this, Lord. I can't do it. You know, Rob and I went up to Rochester to a pastor's conference. I guess it's almost two weeks ago now. And, you know, as I've talked to so many different pastors, many of whom I just, I don't even remember who they are anymore. And as you speak with people in ministry in general, you know, there was a consistent theme. And that theme was this. Every single person when they are in ministry will acknowledge, we don't know what we're doing. You know, so often people come to you and they say, well, what's your plan? I don't know. I mean, I know what the Word says. I know what God expects of the church. But isn't it true? Like, when it comes to ministry, when it comes to working this thing out, we don't know what the heck we're doing. He does. But isn't it funny that we have to depend on Him? 
It's a relationship, right? We looked on Thursday night at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. Well, he doesn't always lay out that path for us, the whole path, right? It requires us to daily spend time with the Lord. And he gives us what we need for that day. But he doesn't give us what we need for tomorrow. Remember when Israel was fed the manna. How often did they have to go out to get that manna? Every day except for the Lord's day. They had to go out and get it every day, our daily bread. And so we understand as believers, we are so insufficient when it comes to living out the Christian life in and of ourselves. We read the word and we see, let nothing be done through selfish ambition and conceit. And we're like, okay, I understand that. (laughs) I get it, Lord, what you want me to do. But Lord, how in the world am I going to do this, Lord? I cannot do this in my own strength. There's no way that I can do it. And he's going to show us the key here as we get to verse 13. Thank God for verse 13. Because if he just left us off at verse 12, and then we went to verse 14 where it tells us not to do anything by murmuring or complaining, that would really be bad news. Right? If he just told you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and by the way, don't murmur, good luck. So I thank the Lord for verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And the word work here is energeo. It's where we get the word energy from. I want you to remember that for a minute. Okay, the word energy, for it is God who works in you. He affects you. And the idea is that he supplies his empowerment through his spirit, through the new nature that he's given us in Christ. He empowers us. We work out what God works in. Okay, in other words, it's number one, it's not let go and let God Because we do have a working out that we do. It's not just Jesus take the wheel and I'm just going to coast and let you do everything. No, he uses us. He energizes us. He empowers us. And Paul would go on to say that the grace of God caused him to work harder than anyone else. The grace that was working in him caused him to work it out more than anyone else. It's a mutual relationship. There's God's part and then there's our part. You know, as an example, when you read the Gospels, notice that Jesus will do what only Jesus can do, but he always expected people to do what they could do. You know, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave, from the dead, Jesus did what only God can do. He called him forth from the dead, right? I can't do that. You can't do that. But when Lazarus comes out as a mummy (laughs) and all of his wrappings, You know, Jesus doesn't just say a word and all of a sudden he spins like the Tasmanian devil and all of a sudden the wrappings are all off. What does he do? He tells the people, go and unwrap him. Or when he raises the little girl from the dead, when when he's there with uh, a couple of the disciples and the parents, Talitha Kumi, he raises her from the dead. What does he do to the parents? He tells them, go and fetch something to eat for her. Or even when he performed the miracles of feeding the multitudes, right? He prays, he blesses the loaves of bread and the fish. And then he gives it to the disciples for them to go and feed the people. See, 
He could have miraculously just fed everyone. In fact, they wouldn't even have had to eat if Jesus so desired to just supernaturally fill them. He could have just said, Boop, you're all good. You're all full. Now go, you know, you, now you can go home. You're okay. But isn't it true that he not only empowers to do the impossible, but he wants to use us. And we get to experience the Lord this way. He, he works in us and then we work it out. There's his part and there's our part. And he does what only he can do, which we understand to be the main thing, right? Because we're just vessels. So what does this work look like in us? What does his work look like in us? I want to reread this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So the first thing that this work in us looks like is he gives us this will. He gives us the desire to obey him. And it, it ultimately becomes a burden many times for us as believers to obey the Lord. You know, you read the word and all of a sudden the spirit of God is churning within you this desire to obey what you're reading. I remember as a new believer, I used to be very afraid to pray for the will of God. Okay. I was saved. I knew I was saved. I knew he died for my sin, but I was terrified to pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Because I remember in my mind, I was terrified that somehow he was going to send me to China <laughs> to be a missionary there. And, you know, as you walk with the Lord, you understand that when he desires for you to do something for him, he's going to give you the desire to do it right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now again, we, our cultures misuse that thinking that Jesus is going to give me whatever I want. But no, when you delight in him, when you put all of your, your heart on him and you put him first in your life and you surrender yourself to the word of God, the spirit of God begins to change your desires. He gives you a desire to come to Cumberland. He gives you a desire to start this ministry, he births it in you. He gives you a burden, a vision, if you will. And it's him giving you that desire. Isn't that awesome that he does that for us? But he doesn't just give us the desire. Notice, second, he also uh, works in you, not only to will, but also to do for his good pleasure. And so he not only gives us the desire, he gives us the ability. And I'm thankful that he does both of these things. Because if he just gave us the will or the desire, but not the ability, that would be pretty discouraging. You'd be like, Lord, I want to serve you. And then he just leaves you there. <laughs> right? Left to yourself. In your own strength, trying to bring about what he's put a desire in your heart to do. That's not very encouraging. Thank God he doesn't just do that to us and drop us there. But also, if he was to give us the ability to do something, but not the desire, then it would just be rote obedience, just unhearted doing stuff within the church. And sometimes you see people serving in that manner. You know, when you, if you ever find yourself serving and you don't have that will, that desire, that joy that comes from serving, something's not right. You're serving in the flesh. You're serving in your own strength. And guess what's next? Burnout. Mm -hmm. Discouragement. Frustration. You know, if you find yourself serving people and you're always frustrated. I need the Lord to give me a fresh desire. Maybe it's time to move on. Maybe it's time to, to see what he has next for me. 
Maybe he's closing a door because he has a new door to open. Or maybe I just need a fresh filling of him. Maybe I've been walking, I haven't been walking in a manner that I'm supposed to walk with the Lord. My devotion with him, my fellowship with him isn't where it should be. And so I'm coasting off of yesterday's food. I'm hungry spiritually. And so thank the Lord, he not only gives us the desire to do things for his good pleasure, but he also gives us the ability. Again, we work out what he first works in. And that's where we see that dynamic relationship with the Lord at play. I love this quote by John Murray. He said this, The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. You know, the people who do the most for the Lord are the people who understand that they can do the least. Because it's God. <laughs> Anything that's of any value eternally is of him. And what, what, what blows my mind, you know, when we stand before him and when we get those rewards, do you realize he's rewarding you for what he really did in you? That's how good he is. That's how much he loves us. He desires to reward us for what he did in us. It's incredible. Therefore, who gets all the glory? He does. That's why no flesh can glory in his presence. And so now we get an example of what he wants to work in us. And as we turn to verse 14, I have to be honest with you. Not a big fan. Um, you might, some of you might recall there was a, a seminar called the Jesus Seminar during the mid-80s and 90s of these scholars who got together and they looked at the Gospels and they were to determine what really Jesus did say and what he didn't say, what he really did and what he didn't really do. You know, sometimes I feel like I need a Paul seminar. You know, there's things in Paul I just really don't care for of what he says. But what the Jesus seminar forgot to know or what they forgot to realize is this, that one day Jesus is going to have his own seminar where he's going to evaluate their every word and where every idle word that we speak is going to be scrutinized by the Lord. And so Paul exhorts us here in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing, right? Probably not a verse you're going to put on a coffee mug. I don't recommend putting this verse on a card and sending it to someone. <laughs> Probably not wise. But do all things without complaining. Uh, if you have a King James, it says murmuring. I wish the New King James would have translated it that. Because I believe that it's supposed to automatically picture in our minds the Old Testament and, and the nation of Israel. Remember when God delivers them out of Egypt, out of bondage, if you will, out of sin, pictorially. And what does Israel do? They get into some difficult situations and they start murmuring and complaining against Moses. And we see that really they were murmuring and complaining against God. Because Moses was just God's instrument. He couldn't do it on his own. Remember, he was a man with babbling lips. He didn't know what to say. And so God uses Moses to draw them out. And they begin murmuring and complaining. Oh, you brought us out here to die. It would have been better if we were back in Egypt. Remember all the foods that we had back there, even though we were slaves, that we forget that part. 
And they were complaining against the Lord. And some people think that perhaps, based on some things in this text, that the, the early murmuring within this church in Philippi was against those in leadership. And it seems like this, this was early on. You know, they were murmuring. The word in the Greek, it even looks like murmur. You know, it's just, what do you do when you murmur? You know, I don't know. They don't know what they're doing. Did you see how they did that? Did you see how Aaron played that song? You know, I, I, I could do that better. You know, there's all that murmuring. Trust me, I couldn't. <laughs> but murmuring ultimately will lead to, notice the second thing here, disputing. Because even though murmuring, it starts out small, it seems very insignificant. But doesn't it begin to draw people together in a negative way? And pretty soon now you have your groups, this group against this group. And that's where many times even church splits can take place because it starts with one person. Yeah. Kind of like if you've watched Home Alone and Harry, you know, every time he gets hurt by, uh, by Kevin blowing his hair off or something along those nature. But um, do all things without complaining and disputing. And I, I don't like the word all things there. You know, I can think of some things that are easy not to murmur about, but all things that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Notice it says that you may become. In other words, we're not there yet. It's something that we will become. And he wants us to be blameless. That means observe conduct, free from fault or without defect. As people look at us, they cannot point the finger at us and say, I heard you murmuring, man. I heard you murmuring. It comes from the word meaning the wine without water or metal without alloy. Uh, he also calls us to be harmless or innocent in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Not much has changed, has it? The world that we inhabit does not take Jesus by surprise. It's not that different from the world that these Christians in Philippi found themselves in. And you know what I found? It's so easy to murmur about society as Christians. You know, we have the truth. We, God's changing our life. Sin is hopefully decreasing in our life. While we look at our world and we see sin increasing, darkness increasing. And isn't it easy to start cursing the darkness? Isn't it tempting to start, you know, you, you make comments about society and about people, uh, about stars or celebrities. You know, we look, we look at those magazines as we're going through the checkout counter and sometimes just something in our heart, we can just judge that person so, so simply, so easy without even thinking about it. And we can murmur as Christians, not just amongst ourselves, but we can murmur against the world that Jesus died for. He loves the world, not the world system that's opposed to him, but the people caught in that system. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't take him by surprise. And it's not the state of the crooked and perverse world that he is concerned with here, but rather it's our state. We represent him. Notice he calls us the children of God. We are to be blameless and harmless as children of God. You know, sometimes I wonder if, if the Lord's not like, you know, when you have children and you're in a public place and the children are acting out 
And as a parent, you're like, I don't even know these kids, right? You just want to walk away and pretend that you don't know who these kids are, that they belong to you. Now, I thank the Lord. I don't believe that he thinks of us that way. But do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now that, that word lights, it could be translated luminaries or stars, okay? That you would shine as stars in the world. And there's a misrepresentation, I believe, of what it means that we would be lights in this world. You know, I've, I've often heard Christians say that we need to reflect God's glory. Did you ever hear someone say that? That we need to reflect his glory. But if I was a teenage girl, I would say, oh, that's so Old, New Test that's so Old Testament. Um, because the reality is, as Christians, we don't reflect his glory. That's Old Testament. That's Moses. Remember when Moses went up to the mount, and when he would come down, his face was shining. It was glowing. Why? Because he was in the very presence of God. But what did he do when he came down the mountain? He put a veil over his face. And one of the main reasons he did that is because that glowing began to subside. It began to go away as he was away from the presence of God. Why? Because God was external. And so the best that Moses could do, Old Testament, was to reflect God's glory. But that glory faded. The glory of the Old Covenant faded over time because it was external, right? God was outside. As Christians, we don't reflect the light. Rather, the light is in us. There's a difference. Paul would tell the church in Corinth, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He would go on to say this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels or jars of clay, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So when he's telling us here that this light, that we were to be lights in the world, it's not a reflecting light. It's not like we're planets. It doesn't say that we're planets, right? The moon reflects the, the light, but, but stars don't reflect light. What makes a star shine? This is interesting. I did a little scientific research for you. Stars are hot balls of glowing plasma, in case you're interested. And they are continually crushing themselves inward. And this gravitational friction that occurs causes the stars to heat up. And, and it creates intense pressure and temperature at the core where, the, where nuclear reactions take place. And these reactions release enormous amounts of energy called gamma rays. And these gamma rays are trapped inside the star. And then they push outward, becoming visible light. Now, why is this significant? Stars produce light from the energy that is inside working its way out. Sound familiar? For it is God who works, energos. It is God who works in us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Isn't it amazing that a star is the absolute perfect representation of what God is doing in us? He's doing it in us. 
We are to work it out so that in the midst of a very, very dark and perverse world that we find ourselves in, we would shine in the midst of that place. Not cursing the darkness, but shining so that people could see the love of Jesus Christ in us and through us. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. These are the words of Jesus. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the excellence of your word. Thank you that before Paul even understood stars, you are the creator, Lord, of the cosmos. You are the, 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 the author, Lord. You are the painter. You are the sculptor of this entire universe. And you knew, Lord, how a star produces light. And you inspired Paul, Lord, almost 2,000 years ago to write this letter to a church, a historical church, but so that we here in 2019 would be blessed. Father, thank you that in your wisdom you've given us these nuggets, Lord, to see your wisdom and to see your glory in the fact that you are working in us, Father. You are desiring transformation to take place as we fellowship with you, as we walk with you, Lord, as we're filled with your spirit, Lord. Would you empower us to be witnesses for you? Would you empower us to be lights, Lord, as we see our world, Lord, we see the darkness, we see the chaos. We see the sin that abounds, Lord. But would you use us, Father, as instruments, Lord, as, as your dear children to point people to you, that you are the light of the world, ultimately, Father, that the, the light that's in us, Lord, we are jars of clay. We are cracked pots, Father. But would you shine your light through us, Lord, that others may see and behold you, Lord, that you would receive all the glory, all of the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.